Welcome to the Filipino American Woman Project, also known as Tifa Project for short, a podcast show that features stories and life lessons told by American women of Filipino descent. We're your co-hosts, Jen Amos. And I'm Nani Dominguez. And thank you for joining us. If today's conversation resonates with you, text us and let us know at 415-484-8329. And if you want to show us some love, buy us boba at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jen and Nani. It says coffee, but we love boba. Again, that's www.buymeacoffee.com slash Jen and Nani. Awesome. With that said, thank you all for your love and support. Now let's get into the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Filipino American Woman Project. I am your co-host, Jen Amos. And as always, I have my fellow co-host with me, Nani Dominguez. Nani, welcome back. Hey, everyone. Yay. And if there was a pause, it's because Nani waved, but we're not doing oh, yeah. today. So I forgot you can't see me today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are doing audio today. Because why not? We can do what we want. It's our show. But anyway, we are super excited because every other week now, since we have reached our 100 episode milestone, we conduct interviews every other week now. I totally repeated myself. Yeah, that's what we do. And on other weeks, if you want to continue to be a part of the conversation, we still will be on here, but we'll be having deeper conversations through our private podcast show, Chismas with Jen and Nani, which you can learn more about on our website, biasboba.com. Yes, we have that domain. It's really cool. With that said, I'm really excited to get into our conversation today. Let's go ahead and introduce Marissa Tarona, who is a mother, a proud Oaklander, forever Oaklander. She's currently in Brooklyn, New York, and a sci-fi nerd. And also her mission, which I absolutely love, is to support leadership of Black and Brown women and girls. So without further ado, Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jen and Nani, for inviting me. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, your second podcast show. Like, how does that feel? <laughs> it's great. And I love the fact that, this, of course, as you said, it's only my second podcast show, but in both instances, working with women of color, podcasters, and just, you know, happy to be in these spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually were introduced to you through a mutual contact, aka Nani's fiance, Cad. So a little background story. How do you two know each other? So Cad and I worked together a long time ago at a wonderful leadership consulting firm called Compass Point based in mm -hmm. Oakland. And it was great to be reconnected with Cad over the last year and just really excited to then be connected to Nani and seeing all this amazing work that the two of you are doing together on this podcast. And it sounds like in a lot of other spaces too. I love the name of the other podcast. Christmas. <laughs> That's like, I was like, oh, I know that. I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, that was Nani's idea, actually. Right. I'm pretty sure you, I didn't come up with that. I'm pretty sure that was you, Nani, who came up with the Christmas part. I just said Jen and Nani. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt very adamant about using that word because I think it just encaptures like everything that we will be putting on there, all the, the new kind of content that we'll be putting on there and how it kind of differs from this show, which is more focused on stories and life lessons told by Panais. So yeah. So watch out everyone. Biasboba.com. I'm going to keep plugging that in there. Because yes. I can. For all the chismas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For all the chismas. Well, as Nani had mentioned, Marissa, the show is called the Filipino American Woman Project. And, you know, the definition has changed throughout the years that we've done this show. And so I really just like to give it to the guests to share a little bit about your family history. And what does it mean for you to be a Filipino American woman? Mm. Oh, I love these questions. This is so good. <laughs> 
It's interesting. When I think about the narrative around my family, I think about the way that migration is very much an integral part of it. And yeah. Migration between spaces. So I think about the liminal spaces between like the US and the Philippines within the way those spaces really overlap. Mm -hmm. So I think like a lot of families, the story of migration is really mixed. And what I mean by that is my mother was an immigrant. Um, My paternal grandfather was an immigrant. And Mm -hmm. then my paternal grandparents were immigrants. And so it's kind of like, how can you have so many generations of migration? I was like, well, that's how the migration happened. And then Mm -hmm. you think about the imperialist relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So I sort of share that that kind of story of migration within the context of kind of this global story of imperialism. So I'll just say that. Yeah. And tell me if I'm going off track from your original question. No, no, Um, no. no. I'm like leaning in. I was like, keep going. Like you said, imperialism. (laughs) Right. Mixed. you know, like story of migration is mixed. Like just everything you said, I was just like, wow, that's just so eloquently said. So keep going. Yes, (laughs) please keep going. (laughs) No, this, I love thinking about it too, because my great grandparents were farm workers in the Central Valley in California. Mm. So right their migration was both about not having opportunities in the Philippines Mm -hmm. and then having limited, but seeking opportunities, right? In the United States. Mm -hmm. My grandfather's migration was about joining the U.S. Navy in the Philippines and Mm. then meeting my grandmother, who was also a farm worker in the Central Valley. And then my parents meeting in university in the Philippines, where my dad ended up going to college in Manila and my mom was was also in college there. So kind of this interesting reverse migration, but then my mom migrates here when they get married um, here Mm -hmm. to the United States. Wow. So just kind of, again, that sort of movement, the idea of movement. And then there's the notion, again, of imperialism, right? Because the U.S. Navy figured greatly into my family's migration story because my grandfather, even though he was a citizen of the Philippines, joined the U.S. Navy for opportunities. Yeah. So that's one part of it. And I think kind of wrapped up into that. If that's one, a couple of themes there, there's also just the theme of how integral family is to like my experience as a Pinai, right? Like maybe more so than anything else just the notion of family and the complexity of it. Yeah. This might resonate with both of you, but both of my parents had very large families, one of six children on one side, one of eight children on the other. Mm -hmm. They ended up just having two of us, my sister and I, but that was very much like when I think about the driving force around my understanding of what it means to be Filipina American, it's very much grounded in the story of family Mm -hmm. and all the complexities that come with it. Mm Mm-hmm. I also think that I've always had a much stronger identity as a Filipina American than I had as an Asian American. Mm. Like I think of being a part of like an Asian American, a bigger sort of API identity as one that's more of a political kind of Mm. like construct. But I think a Filipina American is like having like a cultural aspect to it and a social Mm -hmm. aspect to it as well. It's also, what else would I say about that? That part of, maybe the greater identification with the Filipina American identity for me as it relates to like the broader AAPI context is, you know, sometimes feeling invisibilized in the larger AAPI community, like just as a brown Asian. Yeah. So it's a big part of it. And then having that conversation with my daughter, you mentioned, so I'm a mother of a 14 year old. Her name is Beatrice. She's awesome and amazing. And I'm very proud of her for a whole host of reasons. One of them being, she has a pretty, concrete sense of her political identity and her social identity. And she herself is already grappling with these questions of allyship within the broader AAPI context, the distinction between being a brown Asian versus like East Asian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
there's also like the regional Filipinos, like yeah. East Coast Filipinos are like really different from West Coast Filipinos. And Ooh. then Bay Area mm-hmm. Filipinos feel really mm-hmm. different from like San Diego Filipinos, which I find fascinating. And then I don't know why I just thought of this, but just the long history of Filipinos actually being in the U.S., stretching all the way to like what the 1700s in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and again how that history has been invisibilized. Over yes. There. So mm-hmm. all of those things I'm thinking about. Yeah. So I know what imperialism means, but I don't think our listeners do. So just real briefly, I'm just being, I don't. I'm still trying to understand what imperialism means. But real briefly, can you explain to our listeners like kind of just that imperialism between you know the U.S. and the Philippines, just so they can better understand, aka Jen can better understand? Because I, I think I know it generally, but to if you can like kind of specify a little more, it'd be helpful for other people and also for me. So I will try and I have a feeling that I will fail. Like I will still probably give like a very, like the BuzzFeed definition of what imperialism is. That's, That's completely fine. We'll go, we'll really, go with it. <laughs> but it really is the idea of like empire and the idea of empire and specifically what I'm thinking about when I think about the context of imperialism mm-hmm. is the military empire. Like the idea mm. of establishing military outposts and using that as a way of subjugating then right? The, the communities where you're placing those outposts. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking very specifically about military imperialism Yeah, between the U.S. and the Philippines, like, you know, thinking about Clark, thinking about Subic Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, how that imperialism in particular, I don't, wait, first I should just say, is that, is that a helpful definition? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the example is helpful because I'm, because okay. like when you're talking about it, I think about how my dad joined the military, you know, before Subic Bay was shut down. So it all connects in my head. So keep going. Yeah. And just all this, I also think about, I think I use, I do use imperialism probably as a shorthand military imperialism. And then I think about the relationship between imperialism, especially in the U.S. Philippines context. And I don't know, like the way that misogyny is imposed on on Filipinas in particular, Mm. the relationship between U.S. military imperialism and how Filipinas are often like hypersexualized and oh, just yeah. misogyny. So I kind of oh, like know that. Yeah. conflate that, right, to put all of those things in there together. So that's just my shorthand. I'm sure there are some amazing like Filipino-American scholar who's like, that's not the right definition. As they're listening <laughs> they to can, this podcast. They can come but, on the show. But they, they yeah, they can come on the show. You, and, and share their it. perspective. Right, yeah. Exactly. Until then, exactly. this is your perspective and that's what's most important. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. I mean, I have so many thoughts about what you had shared. I, I just want to check it with Nani first though, because I feel like I've been like asking all the questions here. So any thoughts, yeah. Nani? No, it's okay. I was just thinking as you were talking that, you know, the examples that you give of military imperialism specifically and the hypersexualization of Panais are all, they can all be obviously connected to each other and to define the imperialism that exists between the U.S. and the Philippines. It just makes me think about the, you know, how we were obviously colonized by the U.S. for years and previously by Spain and Japan for another number of years. And so thinking about after we were granted our, you know, I call it false independence, why those military presences still exist in the Philippines and why we even are still having those conversations about the military being present, the U.S. military being present there today in 2021. And also just thinking about your experience with your grandfather joining the Navy, which was the same as my grandpa as well, who was from the Philippines, but joined the U.S. Navy. And I just love that you know the history of your grandparents and your great grandparents and your parents and how they met 
and are able to tie that back to like the evolution of migration for Filipinos in America, because that's pretty much all I know about my grandpa and the most that they've ever told me about how him and my grandma met was at a bus stop outside of the hair salon she worked at, you know? So I'm just like, okay, (laughs) it doesn't leave me much to contextualize when you think about something like imperialism that exists today between the U.S. and the Philippines. And so I really learn a lot by, you know, other Panais who do know those histories and do know those stories of their own families like you and them coming on this show to share. So I think it just helps us, again, contextualize it more so that we can learn what that is and normalize terms like that so that they're not so rare because they very much exist and they very much need to be talked about. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that, Nadi, because it's reminding me of some of the storytelling I still need to do with my daughter. Mm Because I would say she has like similar like snippets, but not the full picture. Um, And then I was also thinking about that it didn't actually happen until much later in life for me to learn Mm -hmm. all of the, and I still don't know it all, right? There's a Mm -hmm. lot that's kept hidden. And I think purposefully invisibilized because I think there's some part, one part of migration, it's not for everyone, but one part of some migration stories or immigration stories for families is we're here now. And so we don't want to go back to any of the trauma that we experience. Like we're creating this opportunity for our families in this specific way. So let's not attach to it some of the pain or trauma, right, right, that might have brought us here. But I have, you know, to your point, I've like felt a lot, I've felt felt so more deeply connected, right, Mm -hmm. to family, and family's complex and really hard sometimes um, by learning these stories. But it's, yeah, again, what you're sharing just reminds me like, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to do some of that storytelling with Beatrice, our daughter. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, we were just reading over your Google form response before we hopped on the call. And at the end, I think you mentioned how this work of learning and unlearning and decolonization is lifelong work. And you go through different phases of that, you know, within first wanting to learn about your family then going through your own kind of identity crisis or thinking about your own identity politics and then later having kids and, you know, wanting to be able to explain that to them and contextualize these ideas for them. So I think that it's important to, even if we've talked about them extensively, you know, before to continue talking about them and continue developing that language that we use to educate ourselves and other people. That's right. That's right. And the good news is this is all recorded. So you can share this with Beatrice. You're like, hey, everything I want to tell you, here you go. Listen to this. Save you some time. You know what it's like, though. You remember when you're a teenager and your parents might have told you, this is a really good thing for you to listen to. You're like, "Uh uh-huh. You're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay. But then you have to have like, if you you told her, she'd be like, oh, these are two cool women who are telling me this as opposed to my mom. Then it's received differently. Exactly. It's totally received differently. So if you like secretly give us her Instagram, we'll like sneak it in there. Like, hey, you don't know us, but just thought you might be interested in this episode. Oh, it's your mom. Oh, what a coincidence. Just never know. So I might do something like that. But Marissa, I was just so taken by everything that you shared just now. I mean, really, when you think about migration and how the story about migration is mixed, it gets me to think about, like, I feel like I have to explain to people if I identify with a certain generation. I always have to say like, well, you know, at first I used to tell the story about like, oh, my dad joined the military from the Philippines, therefore they're first generation and I'm second generation. But then I found out that my dad's dad actually used to be a farm worker in California too. And so he was actually here in the, I think in the early nineties, 
But it's funny because like, I mean, not funny, but when I ask my mom about it, the thing is like my grandpa, I believe had already passed by the time my mom and dad met. So, you know, I try to ask her stuff and she's all like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. So he was in California, you know, just like some kind of response like that. And my mom's very matter of fact kind of personality. So, you know, I can only pull so much from her sometimes. I usually have to nudge my <laughs> sister to help me with that, but little secret there, use your siblings. But anyway, it is interesting to think like, okay, so my grandpa was here. So then what does that mean for me? Does that mean I'm third generation? And, but either way, I, I just really like that. Cause I feel like in college, they used to really try to define what it meant to be a first generation, a 1.5 generation, a second generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I really think it's kind of like saying, hey, if you have time, I can explain to you, <laughs> you know, sort of the generation, but I can't just tell you the number. I have to tell you the story. And I really like that. I really like that you took the time to tell us your family story and your family background. Oh, thank you. And, you know, this is the gift of your podcast, right? Because you're creating this container mm-hmm. for others to share their stories. And to me, I mean, storytelling is just like, I could do storytelling all the time. I can listen to stories all the time. I'm, yeah. I am at heart like a relational organizer. Mm-hmm. And we all know, right, that like in organizing and mobilizing people and building power, it's so much based on storytelling more than anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Thank you for that. And also, I just really like your take on regional Filipinos because I lived in <laughs> San Diego for 20 years and then now I'm here in the East Coast. And the vibe is different, you know, and then I imagine up in Oakland as well, it's different. Not that I've lived there for as long as Nani, basically all her life, but you know, I wouldn't know. (laughs) And so it is quite fascinating. I think that's sort of like indicative of how we all have adapted in those certain areas, because even though America as a whole, there's so many subcultures in America. So even though you're in America and you're a Filipino American, your experience on the West Coast can be completely different from Filipinos experience from the East Coast. Hence why it's so important to have a show like this and why I was very specific of focusing on, you know, American women of Filipino descent, because there's just so much to tell, like there's so much to cover, you know, and and very often or from time to time, people say, oh, why don't you, you know, do people in Canada or why don't, you know, why don't you cover other people? And it's like, well, because there's there's so much to cover here. Like there's just so much to cover and create your own show then, you know what I mean? Like there's your opportunity, run with it, you know? But yeah, I just appreciate you like sharing that. And it really gets me to be reflective of how different we really are with really the common thread being of Filipino descent. But even that is debatable because I know people in the Philippines, not everyone calls themselves Filipinos, depending on what region you're in, you know? So Mm -hmm. anyway, it's all just very fascinating and something worth reflecting on. So yeah, no, it's nice to hear someone else talk about that because I think that's maybe a lot of the reason why people are intrigued by our show specifically, because I'm you know, I was born and raised in Oakland and I don't know anything but Bay Area Filipinos, (laughs) really. You know, I have family in LA and scattered kind of in between here and there in California, but I don't really know a lot of East Coast Filipinos or I didn't until we started this show and we started interviewing people over there. So, you know, and then to have Jen's kind of split perspective of being originally from San Diego and moving to the East Coast and having resided there for a couple of years, it's kind of interesting to see like the spectrum of diversity that comes with the Panay, you know, just across the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so interesting to me that, you know, California, I think about it not only, but I think about it a lot in terms of political power, right? Mm. And so California, there is such a significant concentration of Filipino, Filipina political power, mm-hmm. which is unique in the U.S. outside of probably maybe Hawaii, right? There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of political power there too, but you don't, I don't see the same, I don't know where you are based Jen, on the East coast, but I don't see the same political power. I see social and cultural power 
in places like Queens, right? I see critical mass of people in New Jersey, mm-hmm. Filipinos in New Jersey. But in terms of like the combination of political, cultural, and probably economic and social power, like I see that more concentrated mm-hmm. in, in California than on the east in the East Coast. I mean, right, the new attorney general, right, is Rob mm-hmm. Monta in California. Yes. And it was, there's a really good book. I'm, I'm looking here on my, I can't remember the name of it. This is awful. It's written by Pinai. It's called The Farm. Hmm. Oh, I'm going to look it up right now. Yes, I started reading the farm, that. The Farm by Joanne Ramos. Yes. The reason why I bring that up is it's a really good book. The central characters are all Pinai. Mm-hmm. And she talked about writing the book because she found in Manhattan, we live in Brooklyn, and, and so it's a different experience, but she wrote about being one of very few Panay in Manhattan that she wasn't seeing that weren't nannies or some other sort of caregivers. Yeah. Um, and then just thinking about the relationships that she had that were absent, where there was an absence of other Pinays. And I felt like her story is very illustrative of that kind of lack of visibility mm-hmm. that I've experienced and observed in New York. Yeah. You know, I've lived in Virginia Beach specifically for two years now prior to that, like Richmond, Virginia for seven months, but I didn't stay there long because I can't do inland. So as soon as we saw water in Virginia Beach, we moved here like literally a month later, we've lived here ever since. But anyway, there are a good amount of Filipinos out here, although I haven't entirely immersed myself into it just yet, just because I was starting to socialize in 2020 and then the pandemic happened. But there's a military base here, like all branches of the military are here. And so I've been very fortunate to have one of our listeners reach out to me and she happened to be living here. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been able to meet these other fellow Panais in my age group, sort of. It's like a, at least like a 10-year age range between all of us, I think. But it's interesting to be able to, I guess, like experience that out here. And I wish I could, you know, have more time. But the beauty of the friends that I hang out with are all creatives and entrepreneurs. And so, you know, they're kind of like, okay, let's hang out. Okay, how does a month from now look like on your calendar, right. you know, and I'm just like, <laughs> I was like, respect, but I need you now, you know, right. it's fine. I'll call my mom or something, but you know, it's, I don't call my mom. I probably would call, who would I call? Probably Nani. Nani, I, I've been pinging you lately. <laughs> I've been pinging yes. you lately. Ping but me point, anytime. Yeah. But the point is, well, thanks Nani. But yeah, just the point of like that, the different experience out here and, and even meeting other Filipinos. But I do see some common themes of like the importance of family and uh-huh. also just kind of how easy it is to gravitate toward each other and just kind of assume that we're all on each other's side and, you know, we're all about, you know, supporting one another and stuff like that. That it's interesting because of all the times I've attempted to network out here and try to grow roots and make friends, they just became so easy just because, you know, they're Filipino. So, so that's really my only experience so far out here. And then my sister had lived in, she lived in Brooklyn for a little bit, but current place she lives in is Lower East Side of oh, cool. uh, Manhattan, I believe. Is that There's a lot location? of Filipino restaurants on the Lower East Side? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so she, she was fortunate uh-huh. to work with a group of Panais there called the productions called Raised Panay. And just to be able to get to know the women there and see the work that they do is quite astounding. But it definitely is like, it was the first time I saw a bunch of Panais coming together to do something really creative where like, you know, if you come from like a military family and, you know, you're kind of expected to get a stable job of sorts. So it was really, really cool to see that my sister had found like, you know, those group of friends out in New York. But overall, I think all of this is just to say how fascinating it is, the diversity of just being a Filipino American. And I never get sick of it, right, Nani? Like I never get tired of like hearing like how people define what it means to be Filipino American woman for them, because it's it just feels like it's so different all the time. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's different for everyone. And, you know, everyone has a different interpretation. But what I like that you touched on, Marissa, is that, you know, how that feeling of family or your family politics, whether it's, you know, inspiring or toxic, is always held really like central to how we identify and how we lead in the world in whatever we do. And specifically with you and, you know, the extensive bio that you have on your. Uh, professional resume here. I think it's really astounding, like how you've been able to take that central politic of family and really apply it. Jen and I were just recording for another episode before we hopped on this call with you. And I was kind of talking about the importance of building and strengthening our own community so that we don't have to be dependent on, mm-hmm. you know, the institutionalized systems that inevitably have these glass ceilings that we'll never be able to break through or that we have to try so hard to break through and instead directing our energy and using our time and focus and money and, you know, professionalism to uh, direct towards more intentional purposes, like all the things that you've done. And I think that it can be easy, like Jen said, when you come from a military family or an immigrant family to want to search for stability or security in your nine to five. And, you know, someone like me, who's been stuck in working in corporate America for my whole life, and I'm still too afraid to take that step outside to explore what I could be doing that would be more meaningful to me and more beneficial to my community. Because that importance of having that nine to five with the benefits and, you know, healthcare and all of that is so ingrained, so deeply ingrained in me that it doesn't seem possible sometimes, but through hearing experiences like yours and all that you've been able to do and the success that you've built, you know, for yourself in doing that, it's like, oh, it just kind of opens your eyes a little bit to what's possible. So yeah, with that said, I would love to kind of transition into your experience and the things there's a lot I know. So whatever you feel, you know, is most prevalent or whatever you're most proud of the work that you want to highlight, we would love to hear more about what your life looks like today and the work that you have kind of stapled in your professional career. Oh, that's such a great question. And before I answer that, I do want to say though, don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, I was hearing you like, and the reason why I say that is, you know, well, the world is hard enough and it's going to judge Mm -hmm. us anyway. And I also believe that there are choices we make every single day that might seem really small, but help us to live into our purpose. And, you know, that desire for stability is because we have systems that are built around us that actually make it unstable. Like there's no care built into the infrastructure that currently exists, or there's no infrastructure of care, right? Mm. In the United States more specifically. And so I completely understand why we all make those choices because if it was set up differently, it would give a lot more freedom to a lot of people to be able to make different choices. And then all the class stuff, all that privileged stuff that also gives, anyways, gives people flexibility in ways that it doesn't for most because, again, of our capitalist system. So I won't get, yeah. I won't go too off on a, on a uh, soapbox there, but all I was saying is, you know, yeah, I just encourage you to, you know, continue to practice that self-compassion because I feel that the system isn't set up for us to be able to be purposeful all the time. And so we have to work really hard. And that, that kind of relates to, you know, wow. my journey. If you if you were to look at my career, it's a very kind of in a way zigzaggy, but it I would I would describe it more as like I've gotten clear along the way. It's almost like walking on a trail through a forest. And as I was clearing branches, it became clearer which path I was supposed to be on. Mm. And for me that clarity does really come from family, like who, mm. you know, who I prioritize. Yes. 
informs then the purposeful choices that I'm making. And if I start with that, then I kind of go out to the, the next concentric ring of community um, and who's in my community. And so it's so hard. It is hard to hear like when people are like, oh, the success you've had. And I was like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's because I, I think I part <laughs> of that, like, I, it's funny because like even when people read my bio, I'm like, well, that's me. But like right. when you're in the thick of it, you're not collecting all those accomplishments. You're just living it. So that's I totally understand that in a sense of like, you know, we're here like reading your entire bio when like that's just, you know, that was just you summarizing your life. But it's not like you just got it all at once and became successful right. all at once. So, I, so yeah, just being able to kind of add that context because, you know, for us, we're just reading it for the first time. And, but anyway, take the compliment, Marissa. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right. I was saying that, I was saying that like self-compassion and that I wasn't practicing that. I I that reminder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, go on. <laughs> just to say that, you know, both as I've gotten older and sort of, again, the, I, I think I've been able to practice more discernment as I've gotten older. Mm. And that discernment has been around like, sort of like how much how much closer am I getting to my purpose as I make this choice? Mm -hmm. um, and what are the things that I've had to let go of as I make a choice that is on purpose, but maybe in in opposition to, you know, values I held I hold around recognition mm -hmm. or platform or, you know, stability, right? And I've been fortunate because there is a lot of stability. I mean, a lot of the choices I've been able to make is, again, a lot to do with class privilege, formal education privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also, and, and I've been able to, I sharpen every year, like what my purpose is. And I've been mm. very consistent about that over the last 15 years. And I've been able to achieve that because I've got a great partner who engages in those conversations with me. Yes. And I also have, as I'm sure the both of you do, and this to me is like just been critical is have an amazing community of supporters and partners and collaborators and co-conspirators who have my back and I have theirs. So I've been able to pivot away. I mean, you saw in the early arc of my career, I was at, you know, national law firm. So I was a corporate lawyer. And I found that over time, all of the stuff that I enjoyed doing as a corporate lawyer was all of my volunteer work, mm -hmm. you know, the boards of like different API legal services mm -hmm. organizations, the pro bono work that I did addressing workplace violence. And I was like, well, if I'm enjoying all the stuff that's basically my side hustle, you know, how can I find a way to make my side hustle more of this, not the side hustle, but the center? Mm -hmm. Wow. And in the process of doing that, right, it was letting go of things like a much bigger paycheck, mm -hmm. the quote unquote prestige of being a lawyer, although I don't know if that's prestigious anymore. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, the lawyers in my family and all the lawyers out there. <laughs> but it was like, a, again, a, a continued sort of clearing away of like, what is at the center what is my core? What's yes. going to help me have a 60-40 stance in life that's really grounded, but flexible at the same time? So I've been really fortunate that a lot of pathways are available to me to be able to do that. Yeah. Wow. That was a lot. Nani? <laughs> yeah, no, I was just thinking, you know, thank you for saying that. And that's actually something that CAD tells me pretty often is to stop downplaying myself. And, you know, I for some reason, have a really hard time doing that, even when people can point it out to me in real time. But it is helpful to hear stories like yours. And I'm at that kind of same fork in the road where I'm like, okay, you know, I'm doing this nine to five for the stability and the security of it that I've been taught to prioritize so much. But I also, you know, work X amount of hours per day working on my passion projects, the side hustles that I have, like this podcast or my blog, which I dedicate a lot of time to both of those things. And it's because that's the work that I really enjoy. That's the really 
that's the work that makes me feel really aligned and and purposeful. And so I'm at that kind of point where I'm like, okay, how can I marry kind of the passions from my side hustles with my skill set and my professional opportunity, you know, that I have in my nine to five and still trying to figure that out. And obviously being pregnant, getting ready to, you know, start a family and all that throws a little bit of a wrench in being able to make those plans or take actionable steps towards those plans. But it also gives me time to think about it more and to, you know, refine my decisions for when I get my head back in the game after this. And and it also gives me a little bit time to adjust to making that shift because it is mm-hmm. still scary, regardless of mm-hmm. how much you talk about it or how much people tell you you can do it. It is still going to be scary at the end of the day. So again, it's just really inspiring to like see how you came from working in corporate America as an attorney and kind of shifted slowly but surely into doing all these like really meaningful and impactful project and work. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I'm very excited for my daughter to hear this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll keep uh, picking you up here. Um, you know, Marissa, I had mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, but you also mentioned that you keep refining your mission statement in a sense. And, you know, one of the things we brought up at the beginning is that you really like to support leadership of Black and Brown women and girls. So tell us about that. Tell us the importance of that. And how are you doing that today? Mm. This has just become core to my leadership practice, and I do it in a number of different ways. I I do it as a mother Mm -hmm. of a brown girl, right? In this context that we're in of the United States, I do that as a board member of a wonderful organization in New York called the Sadie Nash Leadership Project, which is specifically focused on leadership development programming for young women in high school and in college, uh, black and brown uh, young women and and uh, girls in the New York area. Um, and I do that, and I hope I do that. I'm trying to do that. I'm very new to this role as the president of the Grantmakers Concerned with Immigrants and Refugees. So I'm fortunate that I get to express it in like personal familial relationships in my kind of pro bono, like volunteer work, more of my, that's more of my movement work and then in my professional life. And in my professional role, like among many things that we do at GSER, that's the shorthand for the organization, is really promoting an immigrant justice and refugee justice agenda. And as part of that, among other things, I know that I want to really prioritize, again, given that I'm new to this role, I just started in November of 2020, the leadership of um, immigrant and migrant and refugee women and Mm -hmm. girls. And for me, the reason why it's so like just integral to who I am is I mean, I guess it really starts with family history. Uh, You know, Mm. part of it starts with the ways in which I've seen some women in my family not get the opportunities that they could have, they should have had access to, Mm -hmm. and that I didn't get them because of the context of the family, people not allowing them to have those opportunities. Also within the context of, as women and as brown women, just being overlooked, you know, being invisibilized in the workplace, not being considered worthy enough or intelligent enough to like Mm. take on. So I have that experience. And then I also have the experience of incredible leaders in my family, women leaders in my family who have done amazing things, right? So there was like, it was like, I think it was the experience of that dichotomy of success that was being experienced by 
a couple of women in my family, and then more often than not, not as much success. However you want to define it, like there's sort of like whatever yeah. dominant culture notion of success, but just not having access to the opportunities. Yeah. And so much of that had to do with class, so much had to do with like the circumstances of the family. And I was like, I think I might be able to be a part of creating those spaces for brown women and girls, black, brown women and black and brown women and girls to not only like do, but to be, to think together and to sort of create. And it gives me joy. Like when you ask about like, because I love it. Like it gives (laughs) me joy. Like when I think about the women who are in my life that I always want to be with, that I am always with, that I think of as my sisters, um, it is women of color. It's black and brown women. And when I've been the most creative, the most impactful at my best in terms of like contributing the most, it is in the company of black and brown women. And so I got some privilege in my life. I have some access in my life. I have some platform in my life so I can do something for other people. Wow. That is so, so very inspiring. And I just love how eloquent you explained really the barriers of being a black and brown woman or a girl, you know, again, just the way you've been talking today, I was just like, just so into it. Yeah. I mean, I think that I can definitely relate um, to that being an integral part of your personality and the change that you want to see take place in the world and how you partake in, in promoting that. And I think that that's the same reason, you know, we are here doing this podcast today, all three of us, you know, because we want to carve that space for ourselves here, specifically, you know, in media in mainstream Mm -hmm. media and amplify that representation. And I can definitely relate to, you know, observing different women uh, in my family growing up and the success that some of them had and some of them did not have or did not take upon themselves. That's right. And I Mm -hmm. can relate that kind of disconnect that I observed in them in my own experience today and thinking about, you know, the child that I have on the way and any future ones that that come after it. I just, I want them to know how capable they are, I guess. And I want them to know that they really have the agency and the autonomy to choose where they want to contribute to the world and not have to be told, you know, go be a nurse or go be a doctor, go be a lawyer or any of the kind of, you know, engineer any of the typical spaces that our families try and push us into, that there's just so much more available to you than that, than those kinds of roles of support. So yeah, I'm just kind of reflecting on that and how I've seen it played out in my own family. I'm so excited for you and Cad on this parenting journey you're about to embark on because it is a lot of, it's just in hearing what you're saying, it's just, I'm excited for you in terms of all the things you get to explore together, things you get to reimagine. Right, things you get to bring forward, but things you get to reimagine too. So I think that's really awesome. Thank you. Yes, I'm lucky to be doing it with him. I think that uh, (laughs) I couldn't have asked for a better partner on this journey. So I definitely learn a lot from him. I think that we learn a lot from each other. So it will be interesting to see how we see that come out in our child. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Cad's going to be like, oh, this podcast is about me. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's like, I'm just going to take that clip right there. Right, what exactly. Nani said. Okay, yeah, enough about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're stuck with him for the rest of life. There's no need to talk about him a lot. Right. Uh, no, I love that. And, you know, Marissa, you just give me a sense of hope and just what you're doing and being the change that you want to see. And that's really what we aspire to do on the show. Like Nani said, is we want to kind of redefine what media looks like for you know, for our fellow Panais and see themselves in media. And so, you know, it's all just very exciting and it all just gives me a sense of hope and appreciation for this conversation. I guess just going back to what life looks like today for all of us and this whole pandemic that we've been dealing with over the last year with the coronavirus and how in some places we're starting to see, you know, everything open back up and restrictions being lifted. And then, you know, you have this other narrative of this new strain that's been released from the UK or wherever it came from and how it might be causing another deadly surge over the next couple of months. And so I think that a lot of us are just kind of confused with how comfortable we should be or not be in this, especially with summer coming out or spring starting and anticipating summer. And you mentioned in your form response for the podcast application that you actually uh, had COVID and were hospitalized for two months, which sounds pretty aggressive. So I would love to just hear more about your experience if you would like to share about that. And, you know, I don't think that we've talked about the experience of actually having COVID a lot on the show over the last year. And if we have, it's just been kind of a very brief description of like symptoms that you experience or whatnot. So I would just love to hear you kind of dive into what that was like to be hospitalized for such a long time. Sure. I'm happy to share my story and let me know if it goes too long or if it's too much detail, but I'll try to give like a a mezzanine level overview of it rather than like too detailed. But So I was one of the early patients hospitalized in New York Mm -hmm. last year. I went into the hospital. Uh, I started getting sick around March 8th, March 9th of last year, and then ended up going into the hospital on March 17th. Wow. Precursor, just to say, right before going into the hospital, I had things like just a continuous high fever for quite a few days. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a very dry cough. And so it was all of the indicators that we knew at the time. Uh And I was one of the first people to get a COVID test at the NYU Langone Hospital. And then the next day I went to the ER and from the ER, they admitted me later that evening to the intensive care unit at NYU Kimmel, which at that point in time was set up as the COVID intensive care unit in New York City through the NYU hospital. So I remained in the hospital from March 17th until May 16th. And during that time, I didn't see my family because right, that's when all the stuff was shut down. And from March 17th to... I'm still not entirely clear on the dates. I think, let's see, I was on the ventilator. So I was put on life support the next day, March 18th. So I was in a coma and on life support from March 18th through April 12th. I remained on the ventilator for another week and a half, but I only needed it during the nighttime. During the daytime, I could breathe in a mask. So I was in a coma for most of that time. And I was also on something called, and this is when it gets really serious, it's called ECMO, which stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation 
which is what they do is they take the blood out of your body and recirculate it in the machine and oxygenate it that way wow. because they had to give my lungs the time to rest and recover from how severe I had been hit by COVID. So wow. I got, because I was an early patient, I got all of the procedures. I got the ECMO. I was on dialysis. Wow. I had all of the steroids. I had the anti-malarial, everything that they were trying, they, they gave it to me. Oh um, and the gosh. reason why I share that is because... Um, touching wood as I say this, I don't have any of the long-term effects that a lot of long haulers who weren't, you've heard about the long haulers, right? Who may not have been hospitalized, but they still have residual symptoms mm. even after they recovered from COVID. I haven't had any of that. Oh, wow, um, thank God. Yeah, exactly. But I stayed, let's see, I was in the ICU and then I was, I, so I spoke to my family for the first time I think April 24th, after I'd gone in on May, on March 17th. Um, and I didn't actually speak to them for a while, even though I had been, they'd been lowering the sedation because I thought that Ephraim and Beatrice had died. I thought that we all had gotten sick and they had died when actually yeah. they only got sick for like a day. And then I was the one in the hospital. So I didn't know what day it was when I came out. I thought I had been only in the oh hospital my for, wow. days, been there for a month. But then I saw them. And being a very typical Pinai mother, my first question was, what high schools did you get into? Because in New York, <laughs> the high school application process had happened, but we didn't know <laughs> what high schools she had got into. So uh, my husband said, Ethan said, oh, she's fine. She's going to be hilarious. okay. And then I was there through, was at the ICU through May 5th, and then they transferred me to the rehab hospital because I had to relearn how to walk and brush my teeth because my muscles had atrophied. Wow. Yeah. And then I came home May 16th. Wow. So really during this time mm. last year, you were yes. you were in the thick of it. And it sounds yep. like this happened to you, you know, at the height of, yep. you know, before we had all the research and That's right. uh, medicine pieces figured out. So that is just such a scary thing. I can't even imagine having to go through that. And for so long too, not even being able to like call your family or text them or anything like that. that um, I could insane. once I was, once I was not sedated anymore and they had reduced the sedation enough, then I was able to communicate with them. We would FaceTime and then I would, wow. I would text and we would WhatsApp, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a scary experience. Oh. I'm sure for your husband and your daughter as well. I yeah, can't imagine I just, how scared they were for you. Exactly. I describe it, Nani and Jen, as I lived through it, but they experienced it, right? Because I was yeah. in a coma. So they were the ones who were hearing the ambulances, hearing the oh, wow. applause, the clapping for frontline workers seven o'clock at night, every night. And so, yeah, that wasn't... And she was finishing eighth grade. Like it was a lot that was happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. poor baby. I feel bad. But thank you for sharing that because I think that a lot of us who you know, people that have had it with more mild symptoms or mm -hmm. no symptoms at all, or people that don't know anyone that have had it yet are just really blind to what it's actually like to get it and how serious to actually take it, which again, I think a lot of people have some confusion around how to proceed this, this spring and uh -huh. summer with their normal life plans or trying to get back to some sense of normalcy. And I think that we're forgetting a lot of those experiences are forgetting to highlight a lot of those experiences that remind us how serious we should be taking it. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Once again, like you're just very seductive with your words, but I was just like leaning in, just like hearing your story. And I'm curious to know, like, what has that meant for you today now? Like, how do you approach, like, let's say going out and about? Um, I think this is just really good to share for our listeners who are finally like, 
oh, this is real. I should probably do something about it. Like what kind of message do you want to share to those people today? I mean, I hope like really clear message is the only way we will get to the other side of this is together. Like you cannot treat your existence as isolated from anyone else's. And so my husband and I were fully vaccinated. We mask still when we go outside, right? We socially distance. We wash our hands all the time. We still have those practices because even though we're pretty much fully protected, we have an accountability and responsibility to the other people in our community. Mm, and yes. I just, you know, there's that the mantra and it's, it's related to this relational piece. I think that was my life lesson or whatever that you, you were able to, to glean yeah. from my ramblings. I am because we are. And so on my existence, wow. your existence is, is in relation, right? We are people because of other people. And yeah. so to move through this time as if your behavior isn't going to impact other people or Mm -hmm. you are not connected more deeply to like this greater ecosystem that we're all in is foolish and it's wrong and it's not true. And so it's, yeah, it's just like that deep sense of like co-care and just obligations to other people. Like when I think about the healthcare workers who took care of me, the technicians, the nurses, the doctors, the housekeeping staff, like there are hundreds of people I will never know that I survived because of of, of wow. them doing their jobs. And so yeah. like, why shouldn't we have, why can't we practice that same thing for each other without the title of being like a frontline worker or a healthcare worker? That's something that I would, that's what I would say. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I am because we are. And just your whole conversation today about the importance of family and I guess overall community and helping one another is, it's so impactful to me as someone who is estranged from most of her family to, you know, often, you know, lately, especially living out here for the last two years, I've been feeling so disconnected or wanting a deep connection, like so badly. And it gets me to think really deeply about like, man, like, do I just need to like reconnect with my family or something? Like, will that make a difference? You know, which probably the answer is probably yes, but I'm still working through that. But yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. And I think it's just so beautiful. And I feel like that's like the life lesson of today, (laughs) Marissa, is, you know, I am because we are. But let me know. I know that also in our notes, we have, you know, the importance of deeply investing in relationships, which I think is a a continuation of this quote. So would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I cannot imagine our collective thriving without it being based on being in right relationship with one another. And I should say, too, that I am not perfect at all in terms of relationships with family members, with like friends, like everything that you just shared, Jenna, that's very much an element of my complicated relationship with both yeah. my nuclear family, not not so much with Ephraim and Bibi, but like, you know, family outside of that, right? And yeah. like even more extended family. So I cannot claim perfection in that. And it's a constant practice that I have to lean into. Yeah. But yeah, like my desire is to be in right relationship with other people. I don't always achieve it, but I think... For me, that's how I can do my work, right? Like the mission impact that we want to achieve in our work in my organization, in the boards that I serve on, but just to be in right relationship with other people. The more we're in right relationship with one another, the more that we can actually thrive rather than just survive or sustain. I think that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's powerful. I feel like that's a pretty much a great way to wrap up our conversation today. Nani, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I think it just goes back to, you know, what we were talking about before in terms of creating that codependency on each other, um, you know, to lift up our community and to strengthen our community so that we don't 
have to seek that standard of excellence, you know, in, in the institutionalized systems that were just not built for us. And the more that we can be in right relationship with each other, the more that we can do that, you know, and we've been taught for so long to tear each other down and have that whole crab mentality of, you know, if you're doing the same thing as me, then you're my enemy. But in reality, that's not, that's not how we should be with each other. We should look at another person doing what we're doing as our sister or as our sibling and someone we can build off of and collaborate with. And yeah, that's the only way that we can amplify our community. Otherwise we just continue to tear each other down. And that goes from everything from business to COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. So I like how you were able to kind of tie that all in together under that theme in today's conversation. Wow. Well, I don't know about you all, but I feel like this is like such a feel good conversation. I feel like just, wow, what a good Saturday. And it's sunny outside over here I'm go out <laughs> yes. later, try to avoid some bugs. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. That's been fun. I'm like, Oh, it is spring, but Marissa, again, thank you so much for your time. We very much appreciate you. And if people want to get a hold of you, let us know, how can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Marissa underscore Tarona, and you can find me on Twitter at Marissa Tarona. No space between my names. Perfect. Wow. Any final thoughts, Marissa? Like, I feel like we got so much out of you and I feel so full and, and happy and just like, I have a lot to think about, but a lot of good things to think about. So thank you again. I mean, I just really want to express my gratitude to both of you, Jen and Nani, for creating a, a really fun space to be in conversation with you on this beautiful spring afternoon. And also because you are creating this container for lots of other women to step into, to share their stories. And that's a huge gift. And so I hope that you consider me a part of your community. And if you need me, you just call on me and I'm happy to support you and continue to, yeah, just amplify your work in any way. Awesome. We would love to have you on uh, Chismas with Jen and Nani for (laughs) some kind of specified content. So as we start to plan our content calendar, I think that we will definitely be reaching back out to you if you're open to it. Oh my gosh, that would be so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, but thank you so much for sharing all that you shared today and making the day so beautiful and giving us, you know, so much to think about and reflect on. So I hope that you, the listener are feeling the same way. Yes. And if you are, we have a phone number. You can text us or leave us a voice message at 415-484-8329. Again, that's 415-484-8329. And of course you can find everything, show notes, other ways to contact us on our website at tifaproject.com. That's T-F-A-W as in the Filipino American woman project.com. Thank you all so much for joining us. And we will chat with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Bye.